This is Unmind with Great Cloud Michael Elliston Roshi. Teaching design and teaching Zen. Design versus Zen. They can be compared, but only for the contrast. You alone decide. If you are paying an undue degree of attention to the details of my Unmind podcasts, you may have noted that the last segment was titled Teaching Zen and Teaching Design, while this one is Teaching Design and Teaching Zen. A trivial difference without a distinction, you might say. The emphasis on design thinking may have been a bit confusing, and Zen will be the major focus of this one but either is here used as a foil for the other in the spirit of harmony of sameness and difference, the second great Chan poem in Soto Zen liturgy by Master Sekito Kisen. Hearing the words, understand the meaning, do not set up standards of your own. Not understanding the way before your eyes how will you know the path you walk? Close quote. In design circles, we say that communication is not the message sent, but the message received. Thus, in parsing my words and any potential relevance to you and your practice, I ask that you look past my clumsy use of language, which is itself dualistic in nature to the non-duality of reality as experienced in your consciousness, especially in your meditation. In the last segment, I pointed out one obvious contrast between Zen thinking and design thinking. We do not think that we can think our way to enlightenment in Zen. Meditation goes beyond thinking. Or perhaps more precisely, Zen's shikantaza, the immediate long-term effect of zazen, defined as objectless meditation, resides in that space that exists before thinking. Thought takes time and so is always looking back on what has already transpired. When it comes to practicing the method of zazen, as well as adapting Zen's worldview. The common premise going in is that thinking, as such, is not going to prove very useful, though it is our most useful tool in apprehending and recognizing what Master Dogen referred to as non-thinking, neither thinking nor not thinking, the mental middle way. Both design and Zen's meditation process involve a transsensory level of learning, in which Zen may be more aptly defined as unlearning. So it is not exactly accurate to say that we can teach Zen, though we do our best to share our experience, including some do's and don'ts, in an interactive dialogue. As Matsuoka Roshi would say, we teach each other Buddhism. 
I often learn more in a given exchange, say in Dokusan, more than may the identified student. Shohaku Okumura Roshi once commented during a Dharma talk that he gave at the Atlanta Zen Center that he was only, quote, the teacher because we were there as, quote, the students. When at home or in a different context, he was certainly no longer a teacher as such. We say that Zen cannot be taught, but that it can be learned. Learning Zen versus learning anything else, especially something as tangible as product design, also differs in that the proof of the pudding in Zen is in a taste so intimate and personal that it cannot be shared with anyone. Whereas if I can sit in the chair you designed and built, I can tell for myself that you either know what you are doing or not. For example, my wife and I once had the distinct pleasure of an overnight stay in Wisconsin in a small cabin that had been designed by Frank Lloyd Wright called the Seth Peterson Cottage. It was a lovely compact building in which neither Seth Peterson nor the great architect had ever set foot, both having died before it was complete. The relevance to our focus here is that while the building and its lovely arboreal siding were works of genius, the breakfast nook was very uncomfortable, consisting of flat banquettes with no cushioning, but they matched the walls, also clad with plywood. FLW was known for this emphasis on appearance over comfort, also evident in an exhibit of his higher-end home furnishings mounted at the Art Institute of the Chicago Museum during my tenure there. Zen and design both entail apprentice modes of training. That is, developing a grasp of Zen is rather like the process of learning to build a Steinway grand piano. The master or journeyman and their apprentice exchange few words, Instead, the apprentice simply observing and imitating what his mentor does. In near total silence, the essential functions and processes are communicated through actions, not words. And eventually, lo and behold, the piano is ready to play. This apprentice-journeyman-master triad is analogous to the initiate-disciple-priest model frequently found in Zen circles. The former wording may be more appropriate to our times than the latter, laden as it is with quasi-religious overtones, which do not quite fit the reality of being a Zen adept in America. Although we have great respect bordering on reverence for our teachers in Zen, we do not let it go to our heads when we find ourselves on the other side of the relationship, or we should not in any case. We who find ourselves in the awkward position of being expected to lead others in this most personal of all problem-solving arenas tend to think of ourselves as more like coaches. The student is like an athlete who is endeavoring to reach the elite level of the sport. If they are not willing to do the work, 
no amount of coaching is going to help. If they are, it does not take much coaching to move the dial. This also applies to design. After all, I cannot know for sure what another person needs to know in terms of Zen. I can only know what it is that I do not know, and perhaps how to go deeper, as my root teacher would say. He would often remark that it's not what you say or do in leading a Zen service, for example. It's how you do it. That is, it is natural and okay to mess up. You may miss the gong at the time designated, blow a line in the chant, etc. But as long as you do not let that get in your way or disrupt the focus of the others present, no harm, no foul. It is more in the attitude with which you approach things, a balance of wholehearted sincerity and lighthearted joy that will convey the essence of Zen than it is in the precision or accuracy of your performance. Zen requires an agile sense of humor and a goodly dollop of humility. Another dimension of the training process shared by Zen and design professionals is that of training the trainers. Although in both cases we are not really propagating a priesthood, but promoting a practice, the notion that our successors will carry on the tradition of training others is implicit in most professions as well as in Zen. Zen should be approached professionally rather than mystically, the latter being an example of unhelpful connotations often associated with Zen in the West. One of my professors at the Institute of Design one day proclaimed that the main thing you pick up from your professors at university consists of their attitudes toward the work. I would add that you also pick up learning habits and a work ethic, learning how to learn, as the standard trope goes. The same goes for Zen. Attitudes need adjustment. But the focus of Zen training is not exclusively in the realm of ideas, but rather in the realm of direct experience. Zen is not about reality or what we can do to manipulate it, but a direct pointing at reality. This is how we approach it on the cushion, without relying on ideas, words, and concepts. In Zen, as well as design, the issue of control comes into play. In planning, designing, and building something, anything, from a chair to the Brooklyn Bridge or Holland Tunnel, we have to control the materials and processes that will achieve the end we are attempting to achieve. Otherwise, the chair will be uncomfortable, like Frank Lloyd Wright's plywood benches. Or we may build in a future disaster like some of the dire engineering collapses we have witnessed from time to time. But trying to control everything has its limits. In meditation circles, we often hear phrases such as controlling the breath 
or emptying your minds of thoughts. These represent attitudes 180 degrees from that in Zen meditation, which is not one of exerting control, but rather relinquishing any real or imagined level of control. We follow the body in assuming the posture, and we follow the breath rather than attempting to control it. What's sauce for the body is sauce for the mind. We let thoughts go until they die down to a dull roar on their own. If you do not agree with this non-control, next time you are meditating and Mother Nature calls, just tell her to buzz off. You are meditating just now. See how that works out for you. Similarly, in design processes, you have to relinquish your tendency to force materials and processes into a mold that is unnatural for them to perform the way you want them to. The concrete has to be adequately reinforced for the tunnel or building to withstand the stresses of gravity or hurricane force winds. The fasteners cannot weaken the wood or the chair will collapse. I could go on, but we'll close with one more aphorism from design thinking. There are many design ideas that are simple in concept, but difficult in execution. Zen may be the poster boy for this truism. Zazen is irreducibly simple in design, but Zen can be maddeningly difficult in daily execution. It is not the fault of Zen, but rather of our stubborn monkey mind. But don't give up. Only you can do this. You are the only one who can design your Zen life. Only you can redesign it as reality intervenes. Unmind is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at aszc.org. You can support these teachings by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gashou.